brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, people, here we go. Ready to roll from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And we have learned a lot of lessons over the years, but one of the most important would be that you need to have a plan for yourself or someone else will. Because the world is full of charismatic cult leaders, cunning psychopaths, and shady organizations just dying to step in and derail your life for their own benefit. And what's really scary about the realms of mind control, coercion, hypnotism, brainwashing, repetition, and the power of suggestion is just how susceptible to it all we really are. We must be, because we so often see the same template playing out in many different manifestations. Attract the lost by claiming to have the answers, capture them with an inviting community image, isolate them from the outside world, subject them to humiliation and public shaming, cultivate a snitching culture with harsh punishment for any infraction, threaten them with the compromising material you've gathered, and when all else fails, just fence them in with barbed wire. It's a tale as old as time, and it seems like if you're fishing for humans, you're bound to hook a few. So when we find these organizations, it's important to expose them for what they really are, which is exactly what you'll find today's guest, Tony Ortega, doing quite often. If you're unfamiliar, Tony is a journalist and author with a long and successful career. He's been executive editor of The Raw Story, a journalist at New Times LA, and was even the editor-in-chief of The Village Voice before focusing on his own project, The Underground Bunker, found at TonyOrtega.org, where you'll see sections dedicated to the Church of Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Nexium. He's been writing about Scientology since 1995, and in 2015, he released his book about their most infamous campaign of terror to destroy author Paulette Cooper, entitled The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. He later partnered with Paulette in the release of Battlefield Scientology, exposing L. Ron Hubbard's Dangerous Religion, which is a well-curated collection of articles he's written about the group with added commentary from Paulette herself. When it comes to these groups, he definitely knows his stuff. So let's do the damn thing. The Scientology sleuth extraordinaire and the journalist for justice from the underground bunker. Tony, my man, welcome to the higher side. Well, Greg, that's quite an introduction. Thank you very much. 
You got it, man. You got it. I try. And thanks for doing this. You really have made yourself an expert in Scientology, and it's an organization we've yet to look at super closely on this show, so I'm glad you're here. I'm with you in that Scientology is really fascinating, and it's pretty wild what they've been able to get away with. I know you're sick of the whole, is it a cult, is it a religion question, and I also agree that that's just a label, it's not all that important, but to get the ball rolling here, I guess I'd ask you how Scientology would define itself and where you might differ in your own definition. Well, it has changed, and that's one of the interesting things about Scientology, is that when it started in 1950 with something called Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard, he called it a science. In fact, to this day, if you buy the book Dianetics, you'll notice the subtitle, the subheading is The Modern Science of Mental Health. And so that's how he sold it initially, was he, he claimed to be a scientist that had found a scientific approach to how the human mind actually works. And he was the first person in 50,000 years to figure things out. And the people that initially reacted to what he was doing really did believe that they were exploring this new science. And it wasn't until he went through a lot of turmoil and upheaval over the next couple of years and was really struggling that he realized that there were some real advantages in switching from calling it a science to calling it a religion. First and foremost was the tax benefits, but also they were getting a lot of heat from the government about health claims. And so you can get away with more if you call yourself a church and a religion than you would if you call yourself a science. So in 1953, just three years into this, he wrote a letter to one of his followers and said that he wanted to look into the religion angle. He literally called it that, the religion angle. So many of us think of it, really, the whole idea of it being a church and a religion is it was mostly expedient. It was basically a, you know, a way of trying to f f deal with problems. And, you know, many longtime Scientologists will tell you that they never think of it as a church or a religion, that they always considered that something for the lawyers and something, a kind of a, a cover story. Increasingly more these days, I find that Scientologists will talk about it as if it were really a church. And there are some metaphysical concepts in Scientology. And, you know, the other thing about the United States is the idea of what is a church is so loose that I don't, I don't know how controversial it is that they call themselves a church. But what I'm more concerned with is, is what are they selling and how they sell it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, and the devil is definitely in those details for sure. And I think most people know a little bit about the history and L. Ron Hubbard 101. I mean, there's a lot of archetypal stories in there that people repeat a lot. But he also has just a really fascinating history, and there are some kind of untold chapters, of course, one of the things we have talked about is him doing some weird sex magic stuff in the desert with Jack Parsons, and that there's speculation that maybe he got the idea for Scientology's structure and levels from some of these orders he was interested in back in the day. Right. But what else can you tell us about the early days of Scientology and how L. Ron Hubbard got it from just this Dianetics book to, I guess, where it was when he left off? Right. Well, uh, he, the thing about Hubbard is he did lead a fascinating, adventurous life. The problem he got into was it was never good enough. He would always embellish and, and just outright lie. 
His own son mentioned that, that, you know, this is, a, this is a guy that got to meet a president when he was a teenager. He got to travel to Asia. He was a glider pilot. I mean, very, you know, Hubbard had a lot of things that he could boast about, but they were just never good enough for him. And so he would, he wasn't just an Eagle Scout. He was the youngest Eagle Scout who ever lived. He wasn't just a glider pilot. He was the best glider pilot of all time. He wasn't just a lieutenant in the war. He fought in all World War II theaters and practically won the war on his own. And so the Church of Scientology picked up all those stories and advanced them, and none of them were true. And that made the church very vulnerable later on. They're a little more careful today, but they still perpetuate a lot of myths about this guy. But he he was born in Nebraska in 1911, and his family moved around a lot. His father was a lieutenant in the Navy, and so he ended up in Montana for a while living with some grandparents and stuff. And then his mother took him out to Guam to see his dad where he was stationed in like 1926 or something, 1927. He was like 16 years old. So he, you know, he got a real taste of adventure very early on. And then he went through, you know, the depression was, was tough, but his dad really wanted him to be an engineer, but he flunked out of college from it. And so he then turned, he, he knew he had talent as a writer. And so he turned to the pulps and back then you could make a living selling stories to magazines in the 30s, but it was not very lucrative. I mean, they were paying about a penny a word. And the way that Hubbard was able to make a, a living out of it was just – there were two different things you could do. You could either become very, very famous, and so you got paid more per word, or you just wrote more words. And he chose the, the second of those options. He just wrote like crazy. He was known for how fast he could type and how many stories he put out. And he put them out under many different names so he could get – his son once said he picked up a magazine one time and realized every single story in it was by his father because he recognized all the uh, pen names. Mm. So that's how Hubbard really started to make a living in the 30s was he just wrote so much. And it's pretty boilerplate. I mean if you read the stuff, a lot of it is just dreck. I mean it's it's adventure stories, westerns, romance stories. And, and some science fiction. I mean, I know he's known for science fiction, but he he himself didn't really like science fiction that much. He hated the, what he called the gadget stories. He did have some well-known science fiction stories, and he was becoming very a favorite with a particular editor at uh, Astounding Magazine. So all this was going fairly well for him, and he had built a following. And then World War II came, and and for him – this is a guy that lived for adventure and he was really, you know, this is like, this was it. He's going to become this great war hero. And he had this really disappointing war experience. He did get the command of a ship in Boston Harbor and it lasted, that command lasted a day. He was deemed incompetent and he was removed from that. Uh, eventually he was in Oregon where he took over another ship. They went off the coast there and spent 35 hours or something depth charging what they thought was a Japanese submarine, and the Navy concluded that it was really just a magnetic deposit on the seafloor. He then sailed that ship down the coast of California down to Baja and then used a Mexican island for shooting practice, and it caused an international incident, and he lost that command. Huh. And then there's some, you know, the thing about Hubbard, you mentioned it, we're always looking for more information, and there's been some new revelations. The real expert on Hubbard and his war years is Chris Owen. He's a fantastic historian, real meticulous researcher. And he found some new uh, – Hubbard was also in Australia early in the war. And Chris Owen has discovered that L. Ron Hubbard's bad planning resulted in the deaths 
of of several sailors on a ship that was encountered by the Japanese. And Hubbard had basically sent them the wrong way around Australia to get someplace, and it put them in harm's way. So, you know, more ignominy from this war. But but the Scientologists to this day think that he was this great war hero and that he had been injured. He claimed that he was machine gunned, and, and he never was in combat once. He did end up in a hospital at the end of the war. The records are clear. He was there for hemorrhoids and pink eye. But, you know, to Hubbard... He claimed that his eyes had been blinded through some flash of a machine gun or something, and he'd been shot in the back or some crazy stuff. And then he claimed by studying the other patients in this hospital that he was able to come up with a new way of curing ailments simply through some discoveries made in the human mind. And this is what became uh, Dianetics. And to this, you know, just a few years ago, one of the spokesmen for Scientology told the New Yorker magazine, look, if Hubbard was not injured in the war, and if he did not heal himself through Dianetics, then our church is built on a lie. And we couldn't believe he said that because the New Yorker then very astutely showed that the the hospital record showed that he never was in combat. He never was injured. So that guy lost his job, by the way, that particular (laughs) spokesman for saying that. He did come out of that experience claiming that he had made these discoveries and then spent the next few years producing this book, Dianetics, that came in 1950. Another thing that's important to keep in mind in this mix, besides pulp fiction writer, Navy commander, failed Navy commander, and that he had been in, that he did have ailments, hemorrhoids and pink eye, was also that he had real psychological problems. And in, in 1947, two years after the war, he actually wrote a letter to the VA begging for psychiatric care. And as far as we know, he never got it. And then just three years later, just three years after he wrote a letter begging for psychiatric help because he was in such bad shape, three years later he writes this book claiming to be the world's expert on the human mind. Lawrence Wright, I think, captured it perfectly when he said that this book was full of folk psychology. You know, it was just he had he dreamed up this idea that the mind has these two halves and we store all, all of our traumatic incidents in one particular part called the reactive mind. And that if we could just erase those memories or lessen their impact, it, we, we could just, you know, get rid of the reactive mind. And then we would just become these superhuman, high IQ, total recall you know, superhumans. And that's what he promised right off the bat with, with Dianetics. And he proposed that the way to get at those negative traumatic experiences, the best way was to go back to the very beginning. And he believed the, the, the most important traumatic experiences that you had occurred to you while you were still in your mother's womb when you were a fetus. And if you could just remember those awful incidents and where did they come from? I'm, I'm not making this up. Numerous times in Dianetics, he uses the example of mom and dad having rough sex. Hello. And dad pounding away at pregnant mom, knocking the fetus unconscious, and then whatever dad then yells at that point, the fetus stores in the reactive mind. And 30, 40 years later, somebody says something similar, and it, and it causes all kinds of problems for you. This is a bizarre theory he had. And so for... About six months, in in the summer of 1950, in the fall of 1950, this created a craze. And there were clubs all around the country where people were literally getting together 
to try to help each other remember what happened to them while they were still in the womb and then to re-experience birth. And, you know, Hubbard's timing was perfect. It was post-war. People were ready to experiment with new ideas. And like I said, for a short time, it was hugely popular. He sold a lot of books. He became very wealthy very quickly. And then within uh, and then six months after that, it, it all blew up. He, 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 his marriage fell apart. He was accused of attacking his wife. He actually absconded with their daughter, their one-year-old daughter, and, and flew to Cuba in hiding. The foundations that he had already created around Dianetics all went bust. He was bankrupt. He actually lost the use of the word Dianetics. And 1951 was an absolute nightmare year for L. Ron Hubbard. But he, had, by that time, he had already brought, you know, attracted a few important followers, one of whom was a wealthy oil man in Kansas. And that guy helped him get back. He got, he took care of the bankruptcy for Hubbard. Hubbard began to rebuild things. And one of the things that had happened, that happened, and, and this is what the subject of the movie, The Master is. I don't know if you've seen that Paul Thomas Anderson movie mm. with Philip Seymour Hoffman, that he's experimenting with what happened in that period when Hubbard was going from Dianetics to this new thing. And by then, a lot of the followers that had been really dug Dianetics and thought it was great. They weren't satisfied with only going back to the womb. They wanted to go back farther into prior lifetimes. And so when Hubbard rebounded and regrouped, he, he did it in Wichita, Kansas, but then primarily Phoenix, Arizona in 1952-1953. He reinvented this whole thing all over again. He couldn't use the word Dianetics because it was still caught up in court, so he invented a new word. He called it Scientology. And in Scientology, you're not just trying to go back to what happened to you as a fetus. You're trying to go back to previous lives to find out what had traumatic things that happened to you. So I've talked to Scientologists who will just outright tell me that, yeah, I, I, I learned that five million years ago I was killed in a war on another planet. And that's why I have problems today. I mean, I mean, this is this is what the essence of Scientology is that you are trying to find these terrible things that happened to you millions of years ago on other planets. Now, because that sounds so ridiculous, that's the last thing Scientology will ever tell you. And that's the real issue I have with them. I don't have a problem if somebody wants to believe that they lived millions of years ago and suffered some trauma that today gives them back pain or gives them the inability to speak in front of a crowd, whatever. If you want to believe that you were some kind of warrior five million years ago on some other planet and it's affecting you today, that's fine. The problem is Scientology won't admit to people that that's what they do. They give you this whole song and dance about how it's a, a self-help group to help you with your communications. They try to make it sound like it's some sort of business seminar. And they don't start to clue people into that past life stuff until you've been in for quite a while. So those are some of the things that I've, I feel Scientology needs to be held accountable for. Yes, I think that's a great breakdown. And let me ask you about the rise of David Miscavige. Because was Scientology always as hardcore as it is today? Imprisoning people, harassing critics, child labor? Or did something change when David took the reins? That's a good question. Some Scientologists will tell you that it was a much different organization under Hubbard. I think, though, that while Miscavige is particularly harsh, he's still basically advancing the policies that Hubbard set in place. I mean, from the very beginning, Hubbard was really paranoid about other people using his ideas. So 
Scientology comes along in 1952 after Dianetics had kind of stumbled. And then by 1953, like I said, he then decides it's going to be called the Church of Scientology. And But, you know, he had called it a science. And what is the nature of a science? The nature of a science is that it's not owned by anybody. Any other investigator should be able to make the same kinds of experiments and you then have similar results or, or, or um, you know, falsify them, right? So just because Newton, Isaac Newton figured out something about gravity doesn't mean he owns that concept and nobody else can study it. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? So if, if L. Ron Hubbard really did discover something scientific about the human mind, then other researchers should be able to replicate those results and then study it on their own. But he would, he went crazy when people did that. When people would like get into Dianetics for a little while or Scientology, they'd drop out and then they'd say, you know, I'm going to take some of these ideas and develop them on my own. He just went crazy. He was, you know, I mean, you want the cynical view is just that he knew he was losing out on that income if somebody else was doing it. And so very early on, he started setting up these elaborate policies in order to police Scientology, in order to crack down on splinter groups. And by the mid-50s, he's writing these incredibly paranoid, harsh justice manuals. And in the 60s, he sets up something with the Orwellian name Ethics. They call it Ethics. What they really mean is obedience. And they, they, these just really harsh rules because Hubbard wants to keep this under wraps and under his control. And so, so a lot of these things that we see today where families are ripped apart – where people are, are are pursued and sued and destroyed, they all come from Hubbard. One of the things that's a, the most important, one of the most important things to understand about Scientology, is that there is only one source, and that is L. Ron Hubbard, and they literally call him that. He is source. So whenever there's a question, you have to go back to his documents, his policies, his books, and cite the particular rule or whatever it is in order to do anything in Scientology, anything at all. And there is no other authority. Well, Hubbard died in 86, and he can't change those things now. So Miscavige took over. He was a very young guy at the time. I think he was only about 26 years old. And he, for the most part, is simply following those Hubbard's policies. It was Hubbard who described how to use dirty tricks to try to destroy journalists and how to destroy ex-members and how to use courts to, to paralyze people. And Hubbard, Hubbard literally wrote it all down. And so today Miscavige is simply following those instructions. Now is Hubbard is, is Miscavige a little more harsh on the disconnection that rips apart families? I think you could make that argument is Miscavige. One of the key differences is, is that Hubbard, as scary as he could be, as paranoid, as as dictatorial, he also had a side where he could just sort of put his hand on somebody's shoulder and give them a little encouragement. And believe me, some of these Sea Org members, people that are most hardcore, a little pat on the back would keep them going for years. You know, I mean, Hubbard knew how to do that. Hubbard knew when to let up a little bit, say something nice, and then that person would be just happy forever. Miscavige has a real hard time doing that. He's just, he's just, you know harsh and and a tough taskmaster and the 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 sea org members themselves reinforce that they feel like they're not getting screamed at if they're not getting you know run around that that they're you know then they're going soft and they they enforce it on each other it's a paramilitary organization it's it's very uh, strict and harsh 
and they expect to live in very difficult conditions. So, so let me tell you a little bit about the Sea Org. Sure. So by 1966, Hubbard, Hubbard had left the United States in 1959. He went to the United Kingdom. He had a lot of success in, in England. But wherever he went, of course, the government would start looking into things, and they were concerned about it. So by 1967, things were heating up for him in England, and he just decided they've got to go somewhere else. He literally moved Scientology to the sea. They purchased some ships, and the one that he, he made his flagship was originally the Royal Scotman, and then it became the Apollo. And he had this little he had this little armada of three ships that sailed around the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, and and you know Scientology was all around the world by then, and he was running it from these ships. And he had about I don't know two or three hundred or something young crew members with him that he called the Sea Organization because they were all at sea. They became the most hardcore inner elite of Scientology, and they were with him on the on the uh, you know Atlantic in the Mediterranean for seven years, from 1967 to 1970, well, almost eight years, 1975. They had gone to the Caribbean by then, and then finally, I think he was sick of it, and they moved on to land in Florida. He, he chose a town called Clearwater, and they essentially. They use subterfuge to basically get a foothold in it, and they bought some buildings. And ever since then, they've made that their one of their main headquarters there in downtown Clearwater, a real sense, real source of friction with the locals because I think a lot of people aren't happy that Scientology basically took over and killed the downtown there in Clearwater. But anyway, so that's the to this day, the most hardcore inner elite of Scientology is called the Sea Organization or the Sea Org. And the people who join it, and they they typically join when they're 13 or 14 years old, they sign billion-year contracts promising to come back lifetime after lifetime. Yes, I had heard about that detail. I'm glad you got there because it is probably the most mind-blowing detail of all that you would sign a billion-year contract even as a kid. And one of the most fascinating aspects to me is the intelligence gathering that they do. The practice of collecting dirt on people and making these files on them. Obviously, the Jeffrey Epstein case has been in the news as well as Nexium and collecting compromising material is a big part of all these stories, but it's really a cornerstone of Scientology. I guess describe the process of sec check for us or any of these auditor sessions that a person would go through because they are quite common and quite fundamental, right? Right. I mean, there's a, there's a real seduction to Scientology for newcomers because when you're joining, when you, you know, you're joining the church of Scientology. Well, if, if you join a Protestant church or a Catholic church or a, a Jewish synagogue or whatever, what do you expect? You expect that you're going to learn their traditions, right? You're going to learn, you're going to read the Bible, you're going to read the Quran, you're going to read, you know, you know, whatever it is that the, the, you're going to be learning about the tradition of the faith you're joining and whether it's something that happened in the Near East uh, 2000 years ago or whatever, but you, you know, you need to learn the stories and the, the history and all that. In Scientology, it's so different because you come in there and, and they want to ask you what the truth is, right? It's all about you. What do you remember? What do you remember when you were born? What do you remember earlier than that? And they have rules that they cannot, what they call, invalidate you. In other words, if you say, well, you know, I think, you know, 400 years ago I was a pirate, 
They can't say, no, nah, we don't think so. I mean, they, they, they cannot invalidate you. If that's what you think you were, you that's what you were. And so it's really kind of intoxicating that all of this is about you exploring this inner story of yourself, and people get very excited about it. And also, I was going to point this out when I was talking about Hubbard's background. The other thing, the other thing he brought to it, besides Pulp Fiction writer and failed Navy commander, was he was also he had been trained as a stage hypnotist. He was a very skillful hypnotist, according to his friends at the time. And in Dianetics, which I've read very carefully, he talks about what he calls a reverie. Now, Scientologists will howl and say Ortega doesn't know what he's talking about. There's no hypnotism in Scientology. In fact, it's the opposite. Hubbard would always say hypnotism puts you to sleep. Scientology wakes you up. But if you look at what they're doing, they're putting you through these rep in these auditing sessions to get you to remember what happened to you previous lifetimes. They just put you through these repetitious questioning sessions, hundreds of questions over and over and over. And it's designed to put you in a trance state. And so suddenly you start remembering, oh, oh yeah, I was – running a prison planet in another galaxy, you know, so it, it's, it, it, the thing is, it's exciting for people because they think these are memories are real. They're holding the sensors of this e-meter that, that the operators is telling them is backing up what they're saying. And then of course, Scientology can never tell you you're wrong. And so this is part of the seduction, part of the allure is that rather than sitting and listening to some story about something that happened in the desert 2000 years ago, they're asking you what happened to you 2,000 years ago. So as you're giving up these stories, what you don't realize is they're pumping you full of this indoctrination about not only is Scientology working to help you remember those things, but Scientology is the only thing that works. This is how people can sign billionaire contracts. This is how people can basically give away their children is that they become convinced that Scientology is the only thing that works. L. Ron Hubbard is the only real genius. All of the other faiths are all fa are fake or they're figments of the imagination. And, you know, Scientology has the only answers that are going to save this planet from destruction. So once you buy into that, which can take some time, it's kind of a seduction. But once you buy into that, it's a very powerful idea. I mean, once you decide that only these guys know the truth of what's going on in this world and I need to keep going up the bridge to learn the secrets that they know, this is why people spend so much money, so many years. It's incredibly expensive. I mean, the upper levels of auditing cost you several hundred dollars an hour and they can take weeks. It's an astounding study of how the human mind can really be taken over by an entirely different way of thinking. And then it becomes so difficult to get out of that. I talked to Scientologists who left, and they can they tell me it can take 10 or 12 years before they feel like they've finally thrown off this way that Scientology had rewired the way their mind worked. Hmm. I'm sure that it plays a role that they've done all these confessions over years and years and years from the beginning, and now they're kind of afraid of how that information could be used against them, so they don't speak out. Right. So that's I'm sorry, that's the question you were asking is about sex checks and stuff. So okay, so you're giving this you're you're doing this auditing and you're kind of being seduced by the idea that you're discovering yourself for the first time and all that. Well, what they're also doing 
is asking you incredibly invasive questions about your private life. And they have these excuses for it that, you know, you have to, you really have to tell us everything. Or we're not going to be able to help you. And so right from the beginning, they want to know everything. And the deeper you get into it, the more invasive the questions get. All kinds of questions about sex. And, and you know, if you're going to join the SEO, and I actually have these forms at my website. If you want to join the Sea Org, you have to fill out a form about everybody you've ever had any kind of sexual contact with in your entire life. And they want to know details. They want to know what you did. And and see, on the one hand, it's amazing that anybody fills it out because why would a church need that information? Second of all, you can see how they're they want to know everyone you've ever slept with. So they're building and, and identities of those people. So they're building up a database of all this information. And yeah, you bet people are terrified to leave later because they know that Scientology Scientology has these incredibly voluminous files on everything you've ever said about yourself. And we have the lists of questions. I mean, they're they're disgusting. In fact, if you saw the way Leah Remini's series wrapped up, she had on some guests who were young, who had been young people in Scientology, just 13 or 14 years old. And it was their job to ask people these horrible questions about their masturbation fantasies. And meanwhile, Scientology is writing everything down. In particular, the most aggressive interrogations are called security checks or sec checks. They want to know, are you connected with any reporters? Are you connected with the government? Are you really here just to get a story? Do you have any debts? I mean, just all kinds of questions to, to they claim to make sure that it's for their own, their, for Scientology's protection. But, you know, you can't move up the bridge unless you do multiple interrogations like that. And, and the consequences, People often ask me, you know, about like the internet, for example. There's a there's kind of a myth that Scientologists don't use the internet. No, that's not the case. Scientologists use the internet. They use the apps. They use social media, like like the rest of us. But they're incredibly good at policing themselves and don't look at material about the church. The reason why they're so good at policing themselves is they know if they take a listen to this program, for example, at all. And somebody finds out, they will get hauled in for an interrogation. And it'll last three weeks long. They'll ask, well, if you listen to that program, you must have done something else. Who are you, atta- uh, you know, attached to? Who are you talking to? Have you called any reporters? I mean, just this, I mean, like, like a criminal would get, like this really you know, in- invasive interrogation. And then get a bill for it. So I've talked, I talked to a woman who, I guess somebody, told Scientology that she had actually been watching Leah Remini on television. So they hauled her down. It was a three-week interrogation, and she ended up paying like $4,000 for it. This is why Scientologists are so good at ignoring the press about Scientology and not watching Leah Remini is because they know if they if they aren't vigilant, they'll get hauled down to questioning, and it'll cost them a lot of money. Yes, man, that is so wild. And some of the boldest claims about Scientology are around false imprisonment. It seems hard to imagine that an organization could get away with this, with keeping people in the group at these compounds against their will. But this is the testimony of a lot of people who leave and then speak out, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And, and, you know, in particular, there was this thing called the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force. It started in 1974 while they were still on the ship at sea. And it became a kind of a prison program. And, you know, you get thrown in it for a few months until you had your head straight and they let you back out. 
within a few years, the RPF was getting worse and worse. So I've talked to people that were in the RPF for 10 years. And I mean, they were separated from the rest of the Scientology population. They were held out at some ranch somewhere. They were unable to talk to anybody in their family. They were essentially prisoners in America. And it's just, it's stunning that this, that they get away with this. And then of course, the most famous, probably the most famous of those incidents is in 2004, David Miscavige created a special prison situation for his top lieutenants. And so the people that worked closest to him, he was really paranoid about their loyalty. And so he locked up several dozen of them, ultimately, I think, more than 100 people in something that became known as the hole. And what the hole was, it was basically like an office. And, you know, probably virtually everyone who's listening is, is going to hear this has probably worked in an office at some point. There's nothing wrong with working in an office and, and enjoying the people you work with. But imagine if the boss locked the door and wouldn't let you leave for several years. Okay, that's what the hole was. It was it was ostensibly an office, but these people were locked in there day and night. They had to sleep on the floor. They were only let out for a shower in the morning. They were literally fed food from a bucket. And, you know, that started in 2004. It was really awful through 2009. At that point, the press heard about it. The Tampa Bay Times first broke the news about it. And Miscavige then had to improve the conditions somewhat. I think they were a little worried about the FBI doing something about it. But there's still a hole today. There's still we have reliable reports from people that have left that base fairly recently saying that yeah, there's still a group that's segregated. They don't get to eat with the rest of us. They don't get to, you know, they they're they're held on their own. And it is incredible to think in the United States, the 21st century, there is this group that imprisons people, that keeps children from their parents, that, you know, will do what they want to to isolate people they consider problematic and you know people ask me so why doesn't the fbi rush in there and save those people well the problem for law enforcement is that if they did go into int base it's called near hemet california where the hole is and throw open the doors of the hole and say to the people inside you're free come on out they may not want to Mm -hmm. you know i mean they're so indoctrinated i asked you know mike rinder was a prisoner in the hole for a couple of years and we had a long conversation about it, and I asked him about that part of it, and he, and he said, you know, as horrible as the place was, I always assumed I had done something that I deserved to be in there for. And I asked him, I said, well, what was it? What did you do that – and he said, I could never remember what it was, but I just always assumed I must be the lowest of the low if they stick me in here. So that's the thing is the real prison bars are inside your head in Scientology. And so it can be very difficult to sort of, quote, rescue somebody from that situation. Yes. Yeah, people get stuck in those for years. And then there's a couple of the well-known stories are a couple of young women who had to attempt suicide get to get out of there. Jeez. Man. Yeah, this kind of mental prison that you mentioned comes up in the R. Kelly story, too. I watched that series, and it's pretty heartbreaking to see a couple of these specific girls' parents on TV being like, this is not right. He's holding my daughter, mind control, this and that. And then he parades them out for an interview and they're like, no, I, I want to be there. I want to be chained up in a separate room in a mansion and only allowed to go to the bathroom when he lets me. 
And it is a scary thing, but people can get sucked in. And it's a fine line when the government has to say, no, this this is Stockholm syndrome. I mean, who's going to make those determinations? We have free will to a point. And if we want to surrender that to an organization like Scientology, I guess that is our right. But man, and uh, you mentioned Leah Remini's show. I watched a few episodes in preparation for this. And I watched one where she interviews a guy and girl, both seem to be in their 30s now, but they were in Scientology when they were kids. And they were a little bit rebellious. And they were sent to a couple of basically labor camps. I think one's called the Mace Kingsley Ranch School. And this guy describes a time when he was stripped naked while all the other kids, boys and girls, were told to stand around and watch. And he was blasted with a hose and scrubbed with a metal wire brush in front of everyone for his quote-unquote shower. Pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, Mace Kingsley Ranch is particularly notorious. It was started by a couple of Scientologists the Church of Scientology has always claimed that it didn't run it, that these Scientologists did. But clearly, it was a place where Scientologists, could, parents could send their kids. You know, one one thing to keep in mind is that after Dianetics, and then he, he got into Scientology and got more of a cosmic sort of vision for what he was doing, Hubbard then dreamed up this idea that we are each of us immortal beings called a Thetan that's actually trillions of years old. And we live lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, and we just happen to be inhabiting this particular body on this lifetime. But that's just that's a blink of an eye compared to the, the age of your actual Thetan. And so in Hubbard's cosmology, at the end of your particular lifetime, you leave the body, you go to either Venus and Mars to be deprogrammed, and then they send you back to Earth, and you go to a maternity ward and jump into a new baby. So if you're just a sort of soul, disembodied soul Thetan, and you're jumping into a body of an infant, then you really don't have any physical connection to the mother and father who produced that baby. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so Scientologists are taught early on that the, the family unit is an illusion and that this particular person might be your mother and this particular person's your father in this lifetime but five or six lifetimes you might have been their father you know what i'm saying you see what i'm saying because you're jumping around in bodies so the whole idea of families and mothers and fathers is really downplayed extremely in scientology i'm not saying there aren't some close families in scientology there are but this idea is reinforced time and again that you're a thetan you're not a body and so this is why I think some parents find it possible to just drop their kids off and, you know, have the church raise their kids or take, you send them out to this horrible ranch. Mace Kingsley Ranch was in New Mexico then. And, and originally, I think it was in California and, and, and it's gone now. But, you know, this that we have so many other examples of parents basically just giving their kids up to the church. And I think it comes from this idea that in Scientology, family is an illusion. Yeah, and it also helps with that kind of model, with that kind of cosmology, it helps to justify the abuses of children, child labor, and having these 13-year-olds interrogate people about their masturbation habits, because your core being is an eternal soul, so you're not really a kid. You should be treated like an adult, and that is how they get away with a lot of that stuff. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Hubbard Hubbard saw children as ancient beings in a small package. Man. And so I did kind of want to segue over to Jehovah's Witnesses just for a few minutes, if we could, because it's not like you have sections on your blog for every cult and abusive organization that's existed. You keep it very tight. Scientology, Nexium, those two make sense. But Jehovah's Witnesses kind of surprised me. I really didn't know they were much different from Mormons or Baptists, but I guess they are. Yeah, and I have to give Leah Remini credit because she and Mike Rinder were hearing so much from Jehovah's Witnesses that said everything you're saying about Scientology reminds us of what we're going through. And so they decided to put together a special episode. It was really great and, and made me more aware of people like Lloyd Evans and Jerry Miner, who are these ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who are trying to raise awareness about the same kind of abusive practices that Scientology has. And so I got to know those guys. And I decided I wanted to branch out a little bit and still working on that. It's, you know, I, I basically tripled my workload for no more money. So <laughs> that maybe wasn't the most brilliant business decision. But I, I am still I, I, the, the activity I'm doing mostly now is that I am working with Jerry Miner on a podcast. We're doing a podcast and Jerry Miner is talking about Jehovah's Witness. I'm talking about Scientology and we're trying to sort of trade information and understand these different groups. But yes, Jehovah's Witnesses is very problematic. It's got some of the same control mechanisms and same ways of indoctrinating people. And, you know, one of the things I find really sort of troubling about Jehovah's Witnesses is how much they try to scare children. So much of Jehovah's Witnesses is about frightening the heck out of kids about this coming Armageddon, about everybody getting killed, about you know, and I, it just seems so unnecessary. That's something that troubles me. And of course, the blood rule. There's just a lot of similar ways in which the things of the rules are enforced. And then there's some really interesting differences. Instead of you know David Miscavige running Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses has a, a, a governing body of eight men. And it's interesting to see how they deal with some of the controversies. And all the other big difference, of course is that Scientology claims to have millions, but it never has. It's it's probably only got 20,000 people right now. But Jehovah's Witnesses legitimately does have 8 million people around the world. It's just a gigantic organization. And that's one of the questions I had for Lloyd Evans was, well, what do you, what do you expect to happen? Because I think with Scientology, it's small enough and, and, and sort of outrageous enough in its behavior it was already the subject of a major prosecution in the 70s. I could see that happening. And again, in Scientology would be in big trouble. But with an organization of 8 million people, I, you know, I, I'm curious as to what they would like to see happen with Jehovah's Witnesses. And the answer was just that they want to see some reforms at least. You know, let's, you know the blood rule is, is just ridiculous. Why are people dying? It doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a complete misinterpretation of the Bible. And the blood rule is not allowing for transfusions, right? Right. So, so there's a few verses they point to in the Bible that are very clearly Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament talking about that you shouldn't eat blood. And, you know, some of these rules out of the Old Testament are clearly common sense rules. I mean, especially in a time when there wasn't refrigeration and modern medicine, you know, maybe it made sense not to mix, you know, different kinds of foods and things like that that you find in these kosher laws. And one of the things was don't consume blood. And the other thing that was really surprising for me to learn, I wrote a story about this, was it wasn't until the 50s 
or I think it was actually, I'm sorry, maybe like 45, 1945, 1947, that Jehovah's Witnesses even came up with this idea. In fact, you can find publications from like the 20s and 30s where they said good things about transfusion. But then suddenly, overnight, in 1945, there was this rule saying, oh, consuming blood also refers to blood transfusions. And they, this uh, guy died in 1947 because he wouldn't take a blood transfusion, and they practically made him a saint. And then that was it. That was it. No blood transfusions. And and again, why? What, how, how how does that, you know, the, the, it just how can all these other Christian faiths be wrong? And just this one uh, interpreted that correctly. So it's just a shame because so many children, children have died for want of a simple blood transfusion because of their parents' convictions. And it, it just seems so unfair to those children. And then, and then in the past, the Jehovah's Witnesses organization would, 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 you know, really they put out one publication where they were showing pictures of these kids like they're martyrs. And it's, it's just sick. It's just so sick and twisted. So I have, I have become interested in that. And I've really enjoyed talking with Lloyd Evans and Mark O'Donnell and Jerry Minor, Shannon Rowland, about th- their situation because it does seem so similar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously the majority of your work is Scientology. And we do see this template, this blueprint kind of applied to a lot of different totalitarian little groups. And I guess maybe Jehovah's Witnesses is one of them. The only other thing I wanted to ask about them is that a lot of your articles on there, and rightfully so, are about child abuse allegations in the church and this organization Watchtower, which seems to be kind of like their, I don't want to say PR front group, but they definitely seem to be the ones who are attacking this problem head on and uh, even in the court system. But what is the the state? It's really hard with an organization of 8 million people to say something is systemic or foundational, but these child abuse allegations and the court cases that seem to be out there right now, I mean, this is no small thing for them, right? Well, this is a particularly interesting time because Mark O'Donnell was key working with, I think, the Atlantic Magazine had a fantastic story recently where the they figured out that the Jehovah's Witness organization, Watchtower is another name for, yeah, Watchtower Bible Tract Society, I think is the name of the, the, the governing corporation. They knew they had a problem. The Catholic Church knew they had a problem. That it had a problem. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, some time ago, I want to say in like 95 or 96, they wanted to know just how big this problem was. Because the reason why these organizations run into this problem, I'm not, I, I don't think anybody encourages child abuse, child molestation. The, but the problem that these organizations run into is they don't want it to get outside the group. When they figure out that somebody is molesting children, they think they can take care of it themselves rather than trusting law enforcement. That's where they get into trouble. And so they, they move the guy to a different area and don't tell those people. And then he you know does it again. So in 1996, I think, Jehovah's Witnesses wanted to figure out, okay, just how bad is this problem? And they literally put out a questionnaire. They said to all the kingdom halls and said, listen, to their elders, said, listen, fill this out. Let us know about how many problematic people you have and what they're, you know, you know. They created a database of molesters <laughs> with like 10,000 names on it and then tried to keep it quiet. And see, this is, this is why they're in so much trouble right now, it looks like, because that, that fact became public 
And so now, you know, litigation is going, you know, you've got to, you've got to turn over that list. You've got to own up to which people you knew were molesters. It's a really bad situation for Jehovah's Witnesses. And, you know, with groups like this, uh, as Marcy Hamilton said on the, the Leah Remini finale, she said, these organizations will not change on their own. You have to get them into court and force them to make changes. And I think with Jehovah's Witnesses, with this, this molester database, I think that's going to have really big implications for them. So that's something that, you know, we're going to keep an eye on. Uh, yes, yes, definitely do. And just to touch on that one other section of Nexium, obviously it's got some structural similarities to Scientology, some of that same blueprint. Is this just another organization that uses similar tactics or do you see any real connective tissue between them? I think Keith Raniere was fascinated with Scientology and he basically just borrowed some ideas. I don't, I don't really think there was anything going on between them. Nexium and Raniere was pretty self-contained up in upstate New York and he had, you know, he had his own interest in in creating sex slaves. So Early on, he had some people get him some Scientology materials, and he basically just plagiarized it. So they use words like postulate that Scientologists use, and they use some of the same ideas. And, you know, I, I think Hubbard himself was somebody who stole ideas from plenty of other people. I don't think there's that much difference. But I, I think there's some – I see some odd claims being made on the internet about that, that there's some deep connection between Nexium and Scientology and that Nexium being prosecuted is going to lead to Scientology. I, I just really think Rainieri was a very unique individual kind of leader who stole some ideas from Scientology. And the reason why he's going to be going to prison for so long is that like – like with Scientology and other groups, he was able to get away with a lot without the authorities doing anything for so many years. For years and years, people went to the authorities and officials saying, listen, this Nexium group, they're abusing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could never get anything done. But in 19, I think in 2016 or something, there had been some exposés in the press. And you would think if you know you were a rational person – you would think, well, listen, there's been some heat on us and there's been some exposés and the the law enforcement people know a little bit more about us. Maybe we should like sort of like, you know, cool things down and and sort of go underground a little bit. No. Instead, he ramps he ramps it up and starts branding women. Right. <laughs> he he starts having these women brand themselves in their pubic region with his initials. And once that got out, that was the you know, the law, law enforcement, it's sad to say, but, you know, you can, you can rip families apart and extort money from people. But as soon as you have something that, you know, sexual, then it's like, oh, that's over the line. Right. And so they finally did arrest him and prosecute him. And that's when I became more interested. I, the reason why I really wanted to cover Nexium at that point at, at, the, at my website, and I had a wonderful correspondent, Diane Lippman, that went down to the court every day and reported for us. It was really fascinating. I wanted to see what it was like when one of these groups gets prosecuted. Yeah. Because, you know, we've, I've been waiting for so long for the government to do something about Scientology's abuses. Never happens. And now here is a similar group going through an actual federal prosecution. So I was fascinated. And so we kept an eye on that really closely on the trial. Diane did a, a fantastic job just doing a very objective report every day about what she saw, what she, you know, heard. And he was convicted. And it was an interesting kind of case because – 
the, his attorney announced pretty early on that they weren't going to put on any kind of a case at all. The only thing he was going to try to do was cross-examine the prosecution's witnesses and hope that was enough to create doubt in the jury's mind, but it wasn't. They came back with a, a verdict so fast. you could. T- I think they were pissed off. I mean, the, the, the things he was doing to these women was just just outrageous. Yeah, he's going to be sentenced pretty soon, and I don't know. I think he's looking at decades in prison. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to say is I learned most of what I know about the actual court proceedings and the accountability from your website. And it seems like he's going to be sentenced in September, along with Allison Mack and another individual who was pretty high up. Does this seem to be the end of it to you? There's other people who have had charges, but their sentencing was delayed. Does this, is, there, is there a reason why you think that could happen? Are more charges coming? Well, I'm glad you got so much out of our coverage. I was really proud of Diane. I thought we did a good job. But let me tell you, we we were just one of many people covering that. And there are some real experts that know so much about Nexium, so much more than, than I do. And they, you know, the, the best of them is Frank Parlato and his blog mm-hmm. is just fantastic. I think Frank believes that there are other Nexium members who are going to try to carry things on, even with all these top level people going to prison. I think it's going to be difficult for a group like that to stay cohesive when so notorious now. But we'll see. I mean, that is an interesting question about whether this organization continues in some other form. This one was so tightly focused around Rainieri. I, I think it'd be a hard time to carry on. But see, that's that's the thing about Scientology. Hubbard, you know, the FBI raided in 1977. Eleven top Scientologists went to prison. Hubbard himself was named an unindicted co-conspirator. He, uh, some of these people went to prison in the early 80s. He died in 86. Between the prosecution and Hubbard dying, you would think that a group so based around one personality would have a hard time continuing on. But, I mean, that's one thing you do have to give David Miscavige credit for is he picked up the baton and kept it going. And, in fact, Scientology reached its greatest extent and probably most influence in the early 90s after Hubbard had, had died. It, you know, it's shrunk a lot since then, and it's, it doesn't have as nearly as much influence now today. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to survive the death of the founder, and we'll see if Nexium can survive the imprisoning of the founder. It's it's an open question. Yes, it is. I'm right there with you. That's the most fascinating thing about Nexium is that something was done. There was accountability. I mean, it is just so rare. And, you know, fingers crossed, I'll be diving in much deeper to that with Frank in a couple of weeks here. But to get back to Scientology, I have heard you say that for the last few years, they really seem to be in bunker mode. They aren't really doing a lot of recruitment PR or their numbers are definitely hurting. They're not doing the damage control that maybe they once did. What would you say is the state of the organization today? Is there anything hopeful there that they're on the decline? Well, Scientology has been in big trouble for quite a while. I mean, they... they they rely partly on secrecy that, like I said earlier, that they're what you're really going to end up doing in Scientology is spending hundreds of dollars an hour to remove, you know, you, you are a thetan, but there are all kinds of invisible other extra thetans called body thetans attached to you. And you're going to spend hundreds of dollars an hour removing those for years. That's really what Scientology is. But they rely on the secrecy and you not knowing that until you're so committed and you put in so much money that there's no going back. Well, that that secrecy has become harder in the age of the Internet. And 
So more people know to stay away from Scientology, and it's made their recruitment much more difficult. Also, I think governments and media have gotten a little more of a clue about what they're dealing with with Scientology and its front groups. But, um, you know, they're still, like I said, they have a playbook. L. Ron Hubbard wrote down what they're supposed to do, and they follow it, man. They just, they never give up. So, um, you know, probably the biggest effort they've made uh, recently to keep up with his vision of taking over the world is they actually started up their own television network. Scientology TV is on DirecTV, and it's also various streaming apps and stuff like that. I When I want to tune in, I just go on the uh, to Scientology.tv. It's unwatchable. It's just propaganda 24 hours a day. But they have had a few things on there that I found interesting, that they revealed some things about themselves that I was surprised that they did. But it's just very slick, and they're clearly spending a ton of money so they, they will always continue with their efforts to uh, try to recruit people, try to improve their image. But it's just harder for them because, you know, the word is out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as we start wrapping up, we know Scientology can be quite aggressive and quite litigious. And we know they go after the critics quite hard. Have you had problems with this? Am I going to have problems with this? You probably won't, but they, I mean, they constantly smear me online with a lot of garbage. It's a lot of untrue nonsense. And they've gone after my family. They've gone after my wife. They've, they've done elaborate operations to try to get my wife fired from her job. They've, they've done some stuff really creepy that I had to report to the police because it was very, very over the line. And they harass me all, they, they harass people I know all over the world. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, they, they intimidated somebody I know in, I'll just say, Europe in general. And then a few days later, another person I knew in Asia. Okay, so this is this is the kind of money they're willing to spend to fly people all over the world to try and intimidate me and scare me and scare my family. Then it's just constant online. They just spread all this untrue garbage about me. Which I just I just not, you know, I just ignore for the most part because I think most people realize oh that's Scientology they're they're always lying about Ortega, and for the most case that's true and I just it's just I don't I'm not going to let them scare me out of what I'm doing because what I'm doing is is important these there are so many people being harmed by Scientology and I want to tell their stories and and you know there have been many great journalists have, who have written about Scientology they did a great job. I think the thing I bring that's a little different is it's the daily drumbeat. It's, you know, a, a series will come out in the Los Angeles Times or a series will come out in the Tampa Bay Times. They're fantastic. They're award-winning. But the, a month later, people aren't talking about it anymore. And Scientology can go back right back to doing what they were doing. So I, I decided that what there needed to be was a beat reporter watching Scientology every day. I gave myself that job. And I enjoy it. And I, I just there's something to say about Scientology every single day. And I think it's the kind of subject that deserves that kind of scrutiny. And hopefully someday the government will decide that, that they also need to take a harder look. Mm. Wow. Well, cheers to that. The best jobs are definitely the ones we give ourselves. And <laughs> we do what we can to shine a light on the darkness. And I really commend you for the work you're doing. The website is great, TonyOrtega.org. Lots of really deep content on this stuff, a full breakdown of Dianetics, a chronology of the course levels with the Up the Bridge series, 
Really great stuff. Anything else we should tell the people about before we go? New projects in the works or anything? No, I just, I, I hope people come by. One of the best things about the Underground Bunker, TonyOrtega.org, is, is the community. The people, the, the commenters are amazing. There are some wonderful longtime Scientologists that were very important in the organization. They know so much and they bring so much every day to the conversation. And it's really a conversation. It's, it's, it's one of the, you know, livelier, friendlier places uh, on the internet. And, and it's, it's one of the things that's characterized it so, so well. So I hope you join us and, and take a look at what we offer and maybe pick up uh, our book about Paulette Cooper called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right on, man. Well, thanks again. Noble work. It's been a real pleasure. Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks, Greg. I really enjoyed it. Well, sweet baby Jesus, there it is. A deep dive into an organization we all know and love with Tony Ortega. I mean, honestly, you hear these things and it's pretty mind-blowing that such an organization even exists still. I'm sure many people out there don't really know all the details, but the general queasy feeling around Scientology stretches pretty far and wide. And I actually know people who live in Hemet. It's really small, there's not much there, and I've driven past this compound that was mentioned several times myself. But to hear that this is where people were locked up by miscavige against their will? That's pretty surreal. It's also a weird place to build a facility. Obviously, it's secluded and the land is probably pretty cheap as far as California goes. Well, I guess so maybe it's really not that weird given what the goals are. I guess if you're trying to lock people up against their will, if that's a possibility, you might want to be a little off the beaten path. You're not going to find something like this on La Brea in the middle of LA. But I was a little nervous about this one. I feel that it is quite bold. Hopefully, since we just went through a ton of website issues, we won't face more because this group is obviously very aggressive with its critics. But hey, I just asked the questions, right? Don't shoot the messenger. But I'm sure when some people saw this title, they might have got the special tingle because this show and the last episode with Whitney Webb are a really powerful one-two punch of podcasts, if you ask me. Ross Ben, too. I think he really hit that sweet spot as well. Although the most common feedback that I hear lately, like when I've talked to a lot of listeners in person at the As Above event in Portland, is an appreciation for the health shows. So I feel better about peppering them in from time to time. But I love today's show. I hope you did, too. Tony really knows his stuff. His website is very much on point. And they deliver some really high-level material if you're at all interested in digging deeper into any of the three organizations that we talked about today. Also, something that Tony talks about in a lot of his interviews, of course, is the book he wrote about Paulette Cooper's case, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely. We kind of glossed over that case, didn't spend any time on it really at all, because I wanted to make sure we could put Nexium and Jehovah's Witnesses in there in that first hour. But check out his book or listen to him talk about that story because they really put Paulette through the ringer. Apparently, they framed her for bomb threats that were made from her own typewriter. It's a pretty crazy story, and that's really just the beginning of it. But 
we understand how they work. A lot of it is shocking. But at the same time, if you're as cynical as I am, not really that surprising. But it's a very important book. And Paulette Cooper is a very brave woman. Do you remember, if you want to follow up with Tony, his website is TonyOrtega.org. TonyOrtega.com is something else entirely. So if you want to get the latest scoops on organizations of abuse at the underground bunker, TonyOrtega.org. And the fact that his website is called The Underground Bunker, I think some of you guys already know what song I'm going to use to end this show, because it's just too good a fit. The Nexium and Jehovah's Witness material is obviously not the primary focus, but organizational abuses, the culty culture of these groups, you can see a lot of overlap in how they operate and the techniques they use. And that's another reason I think it all fits so well with Whitney's coverage of the Epstein Network, because the compromising material and blackmail aspects are just huge across the board. And then think about how the digital age has just thrown an insane amount of fuel on that. So cover your webcams, be careful what you share, hide your kids, hide your wife. And fortunately for me, I am happily married and live a pretty boring life of just drinking, smoking, and straight West Coasting. And I've never been dishonest about my past. In fact, you can follow my Facebook right back to college when the whole damn thing started. It's not pretty. I don't recommend it. I was a very dumb kid who wanted to push the limits for comedic effect. And I also think we all used Facebook differently in the beginning and didn't realize it would ever be like an official online profile for a person that jobs checked and shit. That came way later. All I'm saying, guys, is keep your game lock tight and be careful who you do drugs with or get crazy around, etc., etc. You want to be more like the girl in the labyrinth so you can tell David Bowie the Goblin King that you have no power over me. In THC News, the next joint session is going to be on the 25th. 7 p.m. Pacific. You can see that now on the front page of the HiresideChats.com, where we have a joint session section, and the link will be updated the day of the event. So you can just click there to join it. Really simple and easy. That's what we want, right? Some people have wondered or complained about why they're not finding the most recent joint session on the site. And the primary reason is the overwhelming emails related to all the issues we've been having this past month. I've really wanted to get them straightened out first. And I can say now everything's definitely good on our end. The developers have worked super hard to straighten everything out. But the two biggest issues I'm dealing with is people who are pulling up a cached version of the site and not clearing out the browser cache to get served up the latest updated version, something that I'm sure tech people understand, but also for plus people, the RSS feed works, but if you don't completely back out in whatever app you use, clear it out entirely, get that THC data out of there, restart the app and come in fresh. If you don't do that, the credentials won't be accepted. So that's a subtle little thing that I have to tell everyone almost individually, one by one. So it's been a lot of hours put into just email replies at this point. The cool thing is that I've actually talked to a lot more plus people one-on-one, -on -one, and 
I think they appreciate that despite the frustration over the last month. I get it. And eventually I might get a customer service email and teach someone the common issues and how the system works. And then I can free up that time a bit. But from day one till today, it's really just been me answering those emails. It's getting kind of too big to handle now, though maybe not when everything is running smoothly. This month has just had a heavy flow, if you know what I mean. And I'm also going to clear out all the comments that you'll find on the site that are about tech issues. It was fine before we had the contact form working, but comments are not the best way to handle tech issues. Comments should be about the episode itself, right? Some thoughts or opinions that matter two months down the line when someone revisits that episode. Just because four people couldn't load their feeds or see the player a week ago, that doesn't need to be there forever, does it? What was I saying? Yes, the last joint session. The other big reason it's not up is I want to reorganize the bonus content to be a bit more clear. Right now, it's a little muddled. Yes, they ported it all over from the Plus site, but I want to make it nicer. I also need to do some work on the show archive. I found a few episodes that play the wrong show if you go back far enough. But I'm just going to have to work through that too. Long story short, I just want to make a nice joint sessions page and then I'll get them all on there and I'll add the latest one then. Hopefully everyone's okay with that. It's just been so go, go, go lately that I kind of need a break from looking at screens and typing. I thought going to Portland for the As Above event would be a break, but I went a little hard there too, and travel tends to take a lot out of me. But cry me a river, right? You don't want to hear the conspiracy podcast King of San Diego's complaints. I get it. But solid show today. Fingers crossed they leave me alone. A little listener, mental projection, intention, protection wouldn't be the end of the world either, you know. Just saying. But I felt this one needed to be done, and I think Tony is the guy we need keeping an eye on things. Give him a big thanks if you can, and a big thanks to you for listening, guys. You have made all my wildest dreams come true. You're the collective Pedro in my life, so to speak. And I'm going to keep trying to bring the heat as best I can. So that's all for me. Take care of each other. I've done my part. Your move, organizations of abuse, mind control cults, and charismatic blackmailing bastards. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer.
The best protection of all is the special shelter built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do? Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, 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 take it under.